Back again after over two years, it's time for a special late-night edition of News of the Century. Obviously, we understand why Sylvania would be attracted to Rebecca. We, we kind of get what's going on there. Like, not just because she's a main character, but the pain that Sylvania went through and the pain that Rebecca went through and all of the, you know, the hardship and the suffering and the you can only depend on yourself energy. We can definitely understand why Sylvania would see that in Rebecca's head and therefore want to court her as a consort. Mm. I want to know the circumstances where Sylvania looked at Manderling and go like, yeah, that's someone I want to have around for the yeah. rest of their life. Well, well, this is why I think that like Manderling is definitely sort of set up as someone we will find out more about later, because she sort of just sort of shows up, and she occupies the Bride of Dracula role. Like, mm-hmm. in the original text, there's a moment in the night where... I forget the name of the narrator character, the one who first... You're thinking of Jonathan. Jonathan, that's it. The brides set upon him and wish to toy with him, and he is at once both repulsed and the subtext is, like, kind of into the whole thing until Dracula shows up and then just kind of does, like, the equivalent of the cat spray of just... It's that... (laughs) <laughs> gif that uh, Chris has been using on the Discord of just uh, Stitch and Lido going like, it's like ah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I used this image when reacting to the moment where Rebecca was narrating her perspective on uh, Sylviana and Mandalay kind of staring each other down, which is just that meme of the very tall woman picking up the other woman and pinning her against the wall. Mm-hmm. It's just like, that's just playing in Rebecca's mind right now. <laughs> you may notice that so far we haven't talked about the sexual themes of this book. Well, to be honest, we're not going to. I suspect that when we invite on Alejandra Vargas to discuss her experience with New Century, she will talk enough about it for all of us. But on top of that, as much as I enjoy a good romantic pairing or even a hot, steamy sex scene, I don't feel equipped to talk about it on an open forum. Was it well written? Yes. Very, very well written. Affecting, even. Emotionally and otherwise. I don't know what it says about me that I have an easier time discussing things that cause me emotional pain than pleasure. I'm overthinking this. Let's move on. I don't know if Mandalay's going to be anything other than just like a tiny side character. Like I can imagine her showing up not as a significant part of the later Thieves books, but just like someone in the background that like is noticing major events happening and all she's Mm. doing is taking care of her quote-unquote adopted child i loved that i will i will most likely kill her in the evening and just the 10 years later 
hasn't done it yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll get around to it one of these days. Like, yeah. I like to imagine that as Sylvie grows up and maybe has a rebellious teenage phase, that oh, her, her vampire mum will just keep saying, like, uh, you, uh, any more left of you, I'm going to bring that forward. I'm going to eat you tonight. And it's like, you say that every night, mum. It's like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to do it this time. I Just you wait. <laughs> That that was a question I wanted to ask. Was the name Sylvie anyone we were aware of in... And I don't like... think so. I don't think that Sylvie came up previously. For all we know, it's just a reference to having seen Loki. Uh, yeah. But no, as far as Manderly is concerned, the only thing that I can picture is that Sylvania happened across her at some point before coming to Centrum, and regardless of the fact that Sylvania is scary, Mandy Lee wouldn't stop giving her a stick, just this total attitude, regardless of the fact that she could end her. And Sylvania was just like, okay, you're not boring. All right. <laughs> you're going to stick I, around with me. You're going to stick around and entertain me. You're going to be my court jester or something. I, I, could, I could see it being a bit like how the Castlevania show opens with the woman who would become Dracula's wife just mm. banging on his front door and saying, like, I, I want to learn some stuff. And then when Dracula tries to frighten her off, she just goes like, well, you're being frightfully rude. You haven't offered to take my coat. You're a terrible host. And, like, I would say that Mandalay injects so much more sass into yes. proceedings than that. But uh, it could be that that same level of amusement plays a role in this. But yeah, there's so many times where so many people are so done with Mandalay and mm -hmm. like almost that is the state of being whenever Mandalay opens her mouth. And it just like, it's like, why do you keep her here? And just Sylvia goes like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I think what comes to mind for me is just that bit in Across the Spider-Verse where you just see Miguel and uh, Peter B. Parker just oh, sort right. of yeah, sort absolutely. Like walking around mocking him it's while Miguel is just stony kind of energy. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> Are there any other major components of the story and upset you want to talk about? Just the experience of like everything between the prologue right. and the uh, I love the descriptive text throughout this yes uh, it's yeah. evocative as all get out and if you're gonna do a gothic story in a castle that has all these components to it you gotta get your descriptive text mm -hmm. down pat and sarah and i had a very interesting conversation last night where because she often finds out about new century by report by mm -hmm. me talking about it she hasn't had the experience of what the writing style is like so she actually asked a very pertinent question, which is, you know, you and I do so much analysis of these books with that knowledge of Alex and his work and other stuff and how that all and his influences and how it all feeds into it. But she asked, how would I describe Alex's writing style, taking all of that away? And I was describing it as cinematic, that mm, you mm, have... Mm. There is an emphasis on forward momentum that it doesn't sit and stay in excessive written description of moments like you would get in uh, Tolkien uh, as the first example of it. There's definitely lots of really quite effective but more efficient descriptive text. And I think that part of that is the first guiding principle of any author is that they want to write the books that they themselves want to read. Yeah. And so for Alex, I know he's spoken about how he struggles to read 
books and part of that comes to i think his adhd i'm one of the few people you'll meet who've written more books than they've read i suspect that alex would bore himself if he spent too long writing yeah. about the specific detailing of all the various shades of red that were on display he wants to give you enough that you have a sense of the setting and include some details that might prompt the imagination and also the law obsessive people gestures at selves yeah. uh, but he wants to keep the train rolling through things so i bring all of this up about what is his writing style because this book i think is him really channeling something that is not necessarily his first port of call which is that castle is a character that he needs to mm. really make sure that at all times we feel every sensory square inch of this place and as i said before the beginning of the book lacks a spoken dialogue for so long and i do think that that would have been something that alex probably it came quite difficult to him because mm. he's drawn to that he likes characters bouncing off one another and spoken dialogue and the character still comes through in narration it absolutely does as we've seen here but he's always drawn to that and so the fact that he is able to actually create this compelling two chapters and then when the dialogue finally comes through it gives it that much more impact that's what surprised me about this book so that's something i really enjoyed about it and what i wanted to say in its like isolation like before we get on to the other parts so you used the word cinematic a moment ago and uh -huh. i think it's important to specify that Cinema can include a lot of different things. Every movie is going to be a collaboration between directors, writers, cinematographers, editors, and every other part of the creative team. And what the end product is, is determined by how well they work together. They're going to have different visions. They're going to have different yeah. ways they're going to want uh, to tell the story. And uh, some... specificity, yeah. for the purposes of specificity, which I did, I remember I elaborated on, in this conversation, I always say that Sarah is like the unofficial third member of the uh, Free the Window team because so many of my thoughts come from conversations I have with her. Sure, and yeah. What I mean by cinematic is that with each bit of narration, I feel as if there is a shot that Alex is envisioning. Yes. And it is his goal as a writer to put you in the headspace where you are visualizing the sh like not just it is not just staged for you where mm -hmm. the entire stage is there and you can take a tour through a particular scene and there's a thing in one corner and another thing over here that may or may not be relevant to the actual plot but it's all there to just flesh things out for alex he has that targeted deliberate quality that I associate with cinema where with cinema the camera always means that what you are seeing is a deliberate choice by the cinematographer the director the entire creative team to show you this instead of that can the visual by itself evoke an emotional response mm, the 
Apparently uh, that Wendigo would think so, yes. Yeah, no, like, okay, so Magwitch, get the fuck out of here. Like, I know you <laughs> I know you're taking your uh new powers for a ride, but like we we've got a show to record. What I think it's important to specify, because there are creators out there, there are directors out there that like to draw out moments mm-hmm. and therefore the pacing can kind of slow down a little bit. Yeah. And 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 can evoke some of that stuff we were talking about a moment ago where J.R.R. Tolkien will just go on for pages and pages of description. Tell Alex, me more about the breakfast they had. Yeah. Alex has a good sense of timing and pacing. He mm. keeps things snappy. He knows when to move on from this shot to the next shot to the dialogue. Much as I love the artistic endeavors of Denis Villeneuve, and specifically his work in Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, there were definitely moments in both of those movies where the shot lingered a little too long from my own neurodivergent brain. The intro to Zoid's Assault is phoning. It says pick up the pace. That's kind of like when we were talking about the opening a moment ago, the opening of Castle of the Moon could on some level be compared to the narration, say, at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, because Mm. that has a bunch of legendary scene setting that is just visuals with Galadriel as the narrator talking about what is going on. And then the first bit of dialogue that we get in that isn't until... um, I want to say the interaction between Isildur and... Elrond. Elrond. I can interject and say no. That comes later. It's when, uh, like, we don't see that. We are told that uh, Isildur kept the ring for himself. And of course, Toby is totally right, though it took effort on his part to remind me. I was remembering things out of order, and I should have known better than to correct the doctor on Tolkien matters. I completely forgot that then. I, I yeah. It's been such a long time since I've seen Fellowship. When was the first bit of spoken dialogue? Was I can when... tell you. I can okay. tell you. All right. It is when you see, and I'm sure Alex might correct me, but I'm pretty sure. Is it when Bilbo Gollum... picks up the ring? It's when Bilbo picks up the ring was what I was going to say, which is like, what's this? Like, Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, that part. <laughs> which works because you could say like, oh, it's when the most unassuming creature when the humanity mm. enters the picture. There is technically, like, you can hear a little bit of Gollum going, my precious, mm. uh, in, mm. like, hissing on the back, but it's, it feels like it's more like background noise. We're yeah. sort of splitting hairs. I think that the first, like, emphasized thing, depending on your definition of it, Actually, there's three cases of like what you could argue is the first spoken dialogue. There's Gollum, there's Bilbo, and then after the opening narration, at least in the theatrical cut, Frodo hears Gandalf singing and then comes up to him and says, you're late, and mm. the wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. I think the moment with Bilbo is actually the vibe I was thinking in terms of comparing it to Castle of the Moon. Because with Bilbo's spoken dialogue, we're still in the past, and Frodo brings us into the present. In all three of those cases, it's grandeur of 
this clash between the races of Middle-earth going up against Mount Doom and Sauron and the forging of the rings and the mm-hmm. divvying up of all this power. And then the power and the fate of everything comes back to the most unassuming creatures, whether it's Bilbo picking up the ring or Frodo on the start of what will be the chain of events for everything going forward, or Gollum, someone who was not unlike a hobbit himself and Mm, mm. the part he would play in all of this. So anyway, this has been my tangent talking about Lord of the Rings because it goes full circle, you see. Alex uh, secured yeah. a lifelong fondness for me from his Lord of the Rings shows, and here I am educating you, uh, yeah. uncultured Philistine who hasn't seen it in far too long. He has seen it, don't worry. Like, I, Sarah, yeah, no, raised I, her head. Sarah raised her head just now in shock. And <laughs> I saw each of them when in the theatre when they came out. I've even seen... I've seen the extended edition of Fellowship and of Two Towers. I don't remember if I saw the one for Return of the King, but like, no. I was hooked as soon as I saw Fellowship because this was the original book was something I bounced off of. Yeah. Peter Jackson's Fellowship, I was like, no, I'm invested in this. I need need to see what happens next. Winding back to uh, (laughs) Castle of the Moon. Winding back to what we were talking about, Whenever you're talking about cinema, cinema can include many different kinds of storytelling and can include different artistic interpretations of how we are going to be presenting this to the Mm -hmm. audience. Mm -hmm. The thing that has always been consistent, as far as New Century is concerned, is that I have never been bored with how Alex presents a story. Yes. Never. I, I would agree with that. Like, with books that I have enjoyed and books that, you know, mean the world to me, there is a feeling that sometimes, like, reading is effort, reading is work, that you, it doesn't play automatically or feel like it unfolds with the ease that a lot of the media that we are now accustomed to does. Even art and interpreting, like, painted artwork that is something that you can see and take in but reading requires that active work so it is very unusual for me to find books that just keep me rolling through and I just keep moving with it and that's what I've found with each of these yes I say this with bias but it's the God's honest truth and you know it was this I'm I'm still reeling from this book man this is not going to be my favorite New Century book. Mm-hmm. I think that Panther Soul probably is the new apex that any future book would have to reach for. Like yeah. I, New Century books in general are going to continue to be great. I have no doubt in my mind about that. But this mm-hmm. book, and I've already gone on record of saying this, but I'm going to say it again here. This book is going to be the book that is going to fucking stick with me the longest in terms of being a fucking splinter in my mind because I of, would agree with that. Because of agree. everything that led up to this in terms of this is the story I was never expecting to hear from Alex. Yeah. He was ostensibly just going to sit on the origins of Seth and how he first 
came into contact with Yagana and maybe leak it out at some later point during one of his other epic things. But no, he decided to make this a story in and of itself. Mm. And he also decided to make it a fucking prequel. This is where yes. we're going to start talking a little bit about where does Castle of the Moon belong in terms of the phases, but also this trilogy that now exists between yeah. Let Them Go, Nightfall of the Wendigo, and Castle of the Moon. So Castle of the Moon, the best way for me to summarize my feelings on it is when I heard that Alex was planning on writing a book that was going to be like his Castlevania with mm-hmm. Blackjack and Hookers, it's something that I thought like, yes, that is entirely my jam. I'm so on board with this. This is going to be fun. And I also knew that he was going to just painstakingly try to replicate the material that he himself is inspired by, but just do justice in the light of all of that. So I knew that it was going to be dripping with atmosphere. I knew it was going to have a lot of a term I coined on the Castlevania show, which is gothic sex appeal. And Mm -hmm. it has that in spades and it just has so much of everything of that i knew it was going to be that and so the way i summarize this book is that it was simultaneously everything i was hoping this book would be and also so much else that i could have never anticipated it would be it did that from line one all the way to the final chapters there is a line midway through this book which both of us twigged to Mm-hmm. was Brea commenting on Castlevania something about to the extent of she doesn't need to lie to us. She is just confident that we will not ask the right questions. Yep. <laughs> and that's kind of how, part of how this book made me feel. I, I'm going to have to go back and actually listen to our previous conversation because I know that we discussed long ago the fact that Seth used the same line on Thomas Arlington that Victor Pen... Victor. This is the second time I've done that. That Vincent Penrose did with his son, James. And I was thinking to myself, look, maybe that's just a line that Alex really likes and he wanted to use it twice. But I did not in my wildest dreams think that Seth was going to turn out to be Vincent Penrose. Here's the thing. I can't remember if it was something we put into one of our recorded shows. We absolutely did talk about it. We absolutely did record on it. We recorded on it. It wasn't a Discord message that you and I should... Okay, because I definitely remember at the time just sort of hearing that and the cadence of it and the fact that Alex ultimately... I think just something about the delivery of both Mm. of them. It just sort of like there was a deliberateness that I thought like... There's something about this man. like, And I thought that your conclusions of that we can draw artistic parallels between them and that there's a lot of complex conclusions we could arrive at. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what if, though? (laughs) Yes. And because I wanted proper receipts, here's a snippet from the opening moments of our Arlington episode, Point of No Return, Part 6. You know, for a moment between through the window uh, conversations that Greg and I have, when I revisited that and went, wait, 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 I had one moment of a 
crack theory of holy shit, Vincent Penrose is Seth, like, <laughs> which I kind of came down from that. The moment passed. I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it is just a case of using two very dominating and domineering men to who are saying this phrase mm-hmm. and to compare and contrast the citations of them. Mm-hmm. That was not a theory that every time I would sit down to read New Century, I was going like, but when are they going to reveal it? Like, put it this way, I was not waiting for this reveal like I was waiting for Mr. White as Thomas Arlington. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. you know, that was something that it was sort of like, we're all just going to not address the elephant in the room because we know that when it gets revealed, it's going to hit us. Mm-hmm. But I think we there was all this sort of unspoken pact that we all knew who it was. And that's kind of what is happening in the text itself. Like I didn't, I wasn't wait sitting and waiting for it like that. But I think in the back of my mind, when I found out about it, it was like, that is a shock. But I fucking knew it. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's something that's really going to bake your noodle, and I only know this because Alex let it out of the bag. All right. James knows. What? James has known that Seth is his father. He hints at it so very lightly in a couple of the books. And thinking about it, I just think to myself, of course, James would figure it out because he's the one that notices all the fucking details. And he only shares it when, like, it's irrelevant. Well, not even that. It's probably partly because he... he was there when... He was there when Seth dies in Nightfall of the Wendigo. And he hands over the memory that belongs to Seth. Yes. The memory of his birth. I didn't completely understand that at the time, but knowing that James knew... But, like, I'm gonna... This is... I I said this at one point. It's like, I know these books almost, you know, back to front because, like, let's be honest, we are second to Alex in terms of how much we Mm -hmm. have poured over every square inch of these things yeah and yet like the revelations in this just make me want to go through and see how much is threaded because like this is a book where it feels as if alex had all of this worked out but by his own admission he has ideas for the future but lets things change along the way so Mm -hmm. i'm not going to say that every little wrinkle of seth's power set and just everything mm-hmm. was figured out from day one of Arlington. But he's definitely going to pretend like this is what he always planned because then he oh, gets yeah. he gets I mean, like a genius. But like, it's just this book is so satisfying and when you think of just all the moments that something makes sense. The fact mm-hmm. that in Arlington you see Seth turn other people by biting them and it's usually on the neck much like Silviana mm. does yeah. he, the fact that he has this aura that stirs very sort of sexual feelings in people after mm-hmm. he's gone which is just what Silviana exudes all throughout this book I mean that may be less a power in and of itself and no. maybe just be the power 
that people are attracted to, much like no, Rebecca. Yeah, it's the presence, and in mm. this, it talks about how like Silviana has this last impression on him, and but that makes sense. Is my point is that you mm-hmm. suddenly put that in. It's like because that's a very much an included detail in that. So, and and also the fact that as we say, when Annie is with him and she thinks about escaping and then he just says no escape Mm -hmm. it's because he knows her thought it's not just that he can read it in people he is inside your head yes and that that has been established now that what seth has is true telepathy yes that he he is literally plucking things out of people's heads the same Mm -hmm. way sylvania is able to pluck thoughts out of people's heads it's so astonishing because for the longest while, Seth felt like he was this overpowered final boss character, like he was Setheroth. general may have done his work in one part of the city, your president may be safe, but across block after block and street after street, the men and women you try so hard to guide are still turning on one another. This is orgiastic expression of their deeply felt unhappiness. You have failed. I am here to ask you, was this worth what you have given? This dark heart exposed. When you look at what he has to give up for this, you realize that like the reason he has as much power as he does is that he has min-maxed his devastation and sadness to create this broken character build. See, here's the thing, and this is one of the thematic elements, mm-hmm. is that at the beginning of all of this, Vincent Penrose was just a man. Mm-hmm. He considered himself, he aspired to be the best of men, mm-hmm. and yet continually failed on some level or another, either through judgment of himself because he fled from the monsters he left behind his wife and child, yes, or because he failed Brea, mm. or because Jophiel looks at him and says, you are no man. Mm-hmm. So when we see him in his final form, which we asserted at the time was very much this force of nature, that's part of the reason why the fact that this was once Vincent Penrose is so shocking because there is almost nothing left of humanity in him at that point. There is something left in him. He is mm. still able to have empathy like he was able to have empathy, like seeing Hrau was some echo of what he experienced with with Brea or something like that. That and also the feeling he had of the great remorse with 
fighting the manticore. Yes, the, the manticore mother. You're absolutely just, right. The, he felt this kinship with it. De- in the death of this beautiful creature, he felt mm-hmm. this immense remorse. And so I think something inside him meant that he would not be responsible for another unique creature dying because it, also, it had yeah. been in combat with him. Yeah. Like That's the specific thing, is that he fought Rao just as Magwitch fights the Manticore, and it is it through that combat that he discovers this kinship and with the Manticore and in Steamheart with Rao, and at the moment where it seems as if they could die, it's just like, no, not again, even mm-hmm. if he doesn't remember what he might mean by feeling, no, not again. It's weird how many pieces of media I've latched onto over the years that specifically tackled the idea of memory. I'm about to get into a big one, which is going to involve spoilers for the movie Memento, so if you don't want to be spoiled, I'll give a timestamp for you to jump to. But in addition to that, and parts of Red vs. Blue and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, while Toby was talking, another memory tickled at the edge of my consciousness. Here is a conversation from the climax of the video game Baldur's Gate 2, where the elven queen Elysim is speaking with the villain John Irenicus, voiced by the inestimable David Warner, R.I.P.D. It is all I have now, Elysim. There is nothing else beyond my revenge. Revenge for what you did to me that the Saldarim did to me. And your revenge has poisoned your heart. The tree touched you once long ago. Do you remember nothing of it? Is there nothing in your heart that remembers love? Is there nothing within you that remembers our love? What we once shared before this obsession doomed you? I... I do not remember your love, Elysim. I've tried. I've tried to recreate it, to spark it anew in my memory, but it is gone. A hollow, dead thing. For years I clung to the memory of it. Then the memory of the memory. And then nothing. The Seldorine took that from me too. I look upon you and feel nothing. I remember nothing but you turning your back on me along with all the others. Now that you've brought that up, I I have to kind of bring up the clincher here. The... To avoid Memento plot spoilers, jump ahead to timestamp 3830. I have to believe in a world outside my own mind. I have to believe that my actions still have meaning, even if I can't remember them. I have to believe that when my eyes are closed, the world's still there. Vincent Penrose is Leonard Shelby from Memento. Because he chose, yes. He asked Yagana to remove the memories from him. It wasn't an accident the way it was in Memento, but he keeps choosing to forget critical parts of his life in order to move on, in order to keep functioning. Mm. And there is a tragedy that comes about by choosing to forget because he may have asked for it for what he thought were the best reasons at the time. But the problem is is that once you forget, you can't control the person that you become. 
Yes. And while him try, he is trying to, yes. but he can't. One of the major components of not just memento, but also just being alive, is the idea of patterns. Our brains search for patterns to create meaning, and our lives follow patterns to create stability. We often keep doing the same things because they are comforting, sometimes even to the point of unhealthiness. But we cannot know that we are stuck in a pattern of behavior if we can't remember what we did or why we did it. In Memento, Leonard Shelby's brain has been wounded. He can't make new memories past the point of his injury. Everything fades. But that doesn't stop him from following the same patterns. He needs those patterns just to function, to remember that he even has anterograde amnesia. But he also keeps following the pattern of trying to avenge the death of his wife, and his dedication to that pattern, and trying to assuage a sense of guilt and a frustration with his condition, means that he ends up doing harm to himself and others, because he cannot have catharsis. Or if he does, he will forget that he had catharsis, and end up back in the same place. In his own words, how can he heal if he can't feel time? Magwitch's situation is different in that the memory loss is a function of choice, not accident. But the motivation is the same. Leonard couldn't handle that he was responsible for the death of his wife, so he puts himself in the role of Avenger. Magwitch can't handle that he abandoned Estelle and James to the Wendigo, and so he asks Yagana to take those memories in exchange for power to kill the monsters themselves. Anger at himself is channeled into violence against others. And by the time Castle of the Moon is done, that anger is so powerful, and made even worse by more self-hate for what he has done and what he has failed to do, that he somehow thinks removing more memories will stem the tide. But as we see from all the events following, nothing can do that. He merely loses more and more of the man he was, becoming more and more a monster. Yagana in this story is one part Teddy and one part Natalie from the movie. She is making deals and using Magwitch to her own ends, and he's more than happy to let her do so. Because it's less difficult than living with what he has done. And that is why when he asks Shigana to remove those memories that, that where he makes the pact with her to be her servant or her emissary or however you want to put it, and Rebecca has to give up her memories too, he says he's doing it in order to avoid genociding humanity mm. but he comes back around to that anyway like the hate is still there the emotions are still there even if he can't remember why he feels this way they are just more uncontrolled mm. he is still that drive and that hate just like rebecca he can't stop being who he is and mm. if he chose to remember that might have been a backstop against seth descending into being a complete monster mm. and but it's also why i look at his death now in nightfall of the wendigo 
and think about his final words. He's ready to die because he has nothing of himself left. He has given up everything that he was. Yeah. Running away from something. Mm. And James gives him back a little bit of that right before Mm. he passes. We'll talk more about that in a future episode. That's why Rebecca's final words to herself in this book are so critical, because she can see what's going on here. And so therefore she has to leave a message for herself, Eleanor Shellstrop style, and say, you have to stop running away from what you were. You have to start running towards something positive. Yeah. Because she she chose for her own reasons to forget the events of the story, which, let's face it, she would have had to have forgotten it. Otherwise, that would have affected everything that came after this. Mm-hmm. And we already know, like, she begins this story not remembering anything. That beginning is also very memento, where she yes. wakes up and she doesn't know what happened and she sees the scar on her and yeah. her, missing, her missing pages, just like Leonard Shelby's journals have been edited and crossed off and everything. Or uh, another great moment where she's fallen asleep after protecting Brea for the first time, and all of a sudden there's fucking explosion because the villagers are laying siege to the house. That's another mm-hmm. thing that reminded me very much of that movie. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit overexcited now because this is the thing that I've been waiting to talk about for fucking ages. Uh, hold on, everybody. I think I accidentally put Greg on times two speed. Hold on. Uh. <laughs> but that ending... With mm. Seth going one way and Rebecca going the other, I have difficulty asserting where this story belongs in this trilogy here because it gives us context for why Rebecca makes the choices that she does in Nightfall of the Wendigo, but it's also context that she doesn't remember. And the only thing that I can speak to in regards to this is that regardless of if she can't remember, we are all repeating patterns and Mm. it's difficult to get away from those repeated patterns. So Mm. some of the thoughts that she has in Nightfall of the Wendigo mirror thoughts that she had in this book, but she remembers that final message to herself. And at key moments, she manages to move towards a better version of herself And part of me wonders if gaining her own telepathy powers means that she might remember. I don't know how that's going to work out. We don't know how that's going to shake out in the meantime. But also, just just as a final capper to all of that, the fact that this book ends with, we must never meet again. And then they meet again, and Rebecca is punching the fuck out of Seth. (laughs) <laughs> that's some dramatic fucking irony there yes yeah <laughs> i'm looking forward to going back to nightfall of the wendigo because mm-hmm. there are details that i are a bit foggy for me and I, i've already looked into some of them but yeah. i was i've been like bouncing around between like details from arlington details from uh, steamheart deep details from nightfall of the wendigo and then going back to castle of the moon as i'm trying to piece all these things together and all i can think of is i like that i'm like that guy from i don't know what tv show it is but you know the guy with all of the fucking red Always sunny and he's like hello hello <laughs> and it's just... take a look at this 
Jesus Christ, Charlie. That right there is the mail. Now let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Mac? I'm dying to talk about the mail for you all day, okay? Pepe Sylvia, this name keeps coming up over and over again. Every day, Pepe's mail's getting sent back to me. Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia. I look in the mail, well, this whole box is Pepe Sylvia! So I say to myself, I gotta find this guy. I gotta go up to his office. I gotta put his mail in the guy's goddamn hands. Otherwise, he's never gonna get it. He's gonna keep coming back down here. So I go up to Pepe's office, and what do I find out, Mac? What do I find out? There's no Pepe Sylvia. The man does not exist, okay? So I decided, oh shit, buddy, I gotta dig a little deeper. There's no Pepe Sylvia, you gotta be kidding me! I got boxes full of Pepe! All right, so I start marching my way down to Carol and HR, and I knock on her door and I say, Carol! Carol, I gotta talk to you about Pepe! And when I open the door, what do I find? There's not a single goddamn desk in that office. There is no Carol in HR. Matt, half the employees in this building have been made up. This office is a goddamn ghost town. Okay, Charlie, I'm gonna have to stop you right there. Um, <laughs> uh, a moment in it that felt like so, so important, like it was everything, is that when Maglitch says his final line to Rebecca, mm. he offers his hand to shake yes. her hand. Yes. That was the first hint that this was Vincent because he doesn't give his hand to the villagers when he makes the, the deal with them to take care of the oh, shit. Yeah, I, I immediately was like, oh, because that's the thing. When I first read that moment, I was like, oh yeah, that reminds me of that thing with Vincent Penrose. Fuck! I didn't, I didn't twig that. It was like literally the James moment. And I was mm -hmm. like, wait, Alex wouldn't like, just yes. bringing up another character called James, that would that would just be confusing, right? And then I was like, oh my goodness, uh, I was right. <laughs> there is a line from the edit that I just finished doing that I'm going yeah. out to repeat back to you now, because it was mm -hmm. something you said. Trust Alex Shaw, but don't trust him too much. Yes, that is entirely what it is like that is exactly how you should operate with these okay i guess like what i'll say because i would like this on record for like this initial thing you were saying like oh i don't know if this is my favorite uh new century book but it's definitely going to be the one that i think about like almost the most out of what we have so far and my feelings on it is that it almost hurts me too much for me to say that it is my favorite one. The reason why I always go back to like Steamheart, not Steamheart, uh, Stone Spring Maidens is mm. like a personal favorite is that that one has a message at its core that just resonated with me and embodies a lot of the hope punk sensibilities mm. that mm. I mm. think is, if there's a recurring genre type of this sort, then it's, that and I think that Stone Spring embodies that, and then Panther Soul is just Panther Soul, so that one is another hopeful one. But this is a tragedy. This, this is, is a tragedy. This and is Shakespearean not... Hamlet yes. tragedy. Yeah, it doesn't hold back its punches. No, it doesn't abandon hope, it just leaves you with questions, I think. Mm. And they are the kinds of questions I thrive on. The kinds of questions that are personally relevant, that don't have easy answers. But in trying to answer them, maybe something good will come out of the effort. There are people who are picking up the pieces afterwards and survive, but 
Rebecca is kind of like the chorus of this whole mm. thing. Yes. And at the end, it is her conclusions that we are left with, even if she may not even remember them to actually answer where it sits in my estimation. It's entirely my shit. 100% my vibe. I love the setting, the genre, the characters. It looks the last missing place I had needed for Seth, Magwitch, Vincent. All the incarnations of this character make them perhaps the most endlessly fascinating in the character in New Century to think about and to conceptualise. There's so many ideas that I will be going over even after we record. The idea that, like, the first thing we see of Vincent in James's discussion of him is that he is this person making deals with other people, mm. and Seth is nothing but the result of all these deals that he mm. will just keep on making so that he may conclude his business, just as we saw Vincent in those earliest days. And he is a stubborn man, he is an unkind man, he is a monster, but he is also an deeply empathetic man and a lonely man, remorseful, regretful. There are depths that he is never going to have the full picture of himself. No. And the burden and, of and that, that is and, on us. Yeah, the burden of yeah. that is on us. We're the ones witnessing all of it. Yeah. Meanwhile, he has all these emotions which he chose not to remember why mm -hmm. he has them. Because that's that that's a key component of this whole experience, is that when we remember things, we have an emotional reaction to it. That it, it triggers the chemicals in us mm. that bring that out of us. And mm. even if there's a hole of where that memory was that you can't completely access it, it doesn't mm. change the idea that you could have an emotional reaction to something you don't remember. And I feel like that's something yes. that's constantly going on with Seth in relationship to like when he is first seeing James in Steamheart, because James is keying into this and Seth is like, what is it about you? And he thinks it's the starlit eye or something else. But the thing is, he can't remember what his own son looks like. Yes. So he knows that there's something going on, but he doesn't have the memory to access it. Mm. Or when he's having the conversation with Thomas about his son, Frederick, again, emotional connection to something he can't remember. Yes. And with this last piece in place, it makes so much sense that Seth is in spite of him being a piece of larger plans in action, that he is a powerful figure given his power by more powerful figures, which, mm. you know, makes me think that uh, when Rasputin becomes a thing later, like, the bill is due at one mm -hmm. point. But um, despite all of that, Seth is the first and most prominent antagonist of New Century and this book makes it so apparent why he fits mm. the bill so well because New Century is about grief mm. about grieving the ones you lose the life you were supposed to lead all of that 
And Seth is the result of someone who cannot function with his own grief. He becomes a monster because of his own grief. Yeah. He becomes a monster because of his own grief. He cannot reconcile it. He takes on more trauma in order to compartmentalize it. It builds and builds until he is nothing but a cannonball to be loosed on anything and anyone because of the influence of other people. You posited at one point, did he see Brea as his daughter? I'm pretty sure he did. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that... uh, She called him father, which, Mm -hmm. like, confused me because, like, that was the name of her, or that was how she referred to Father Batista, the Mm. first uh, protector that she had for long. We don't even know how they meet. No, like we don't we, know how they meet. We almost don't need to know. Need to know. No. But the but the thing here is is that even though Brea did not have telepathy the way Sylvania did, I'm pretty sure that Brea was able to read enough off of Magwitch to get that he had fatherly vibes towards her. She mm. knew that. She yes, was she old did. enough and she was canny enough to be able to recognize mm. that. And at the end he reflects that his children are dead because of him failing them. Mm, mm. That is enough to drive anyone mad, enough to drive anyone to want to forget that. So to bring all of that back to answering the question of like, how do I feel about this book Mm. now that I've finished it? I can't call it my favorite new century book because it hurts me too much. But as far as character studies and giving me everything that I prize, it's up there with the best of them. It is one of the best for me. Something I want to key into here in regards to what you were just talking about, Vincent slash Magwitch slash Seth being defined by grief and pain. Mm -hmm. He makes deals with Yagana, but he doesn't shake Yagana's hand. No. The only person whose hand he shakes is Rebecca's. One could argue that there's a level of respect going on there, but I'm going to suppose that what Magwitch is responding to there is the shared grief that both of them have that makes them a level of kin. And that's what he respects. He respects their shared pain. Precisely. And also... Another thing that makes Magwitch and what he becomes, which is Seth, this perfect antagonist in the story about grief, is the fact that he is grief suspended because Mm. he is in a perpetual cycle of bargaining. He can't move on. Yes, he can't move on from bargaining. (laughs) He can never move on to acceptance until he has nothing left to bargain with. Holy shit. Yeah. We could keep talking, but that's a hell of a note to end on. Yeah, I I feel so bad like not like going into more of this, but there will be time mm. for that. This is yes. the purpose of news is always to like give Alex that vindication for having written a book and that it <laughs> and then just seeing this reaction from us. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done that here. It's been a day. I, I managed yeah. to do this. I managed to get a lot of other stuff done as well and 
I did a D&D session yesterday, so this has been a delightful weekend. It has been yeah. a lot of, it has been a weekend of a lot. <laughs> yes, it is exhausting. We feel raw at the end of it. One last thought to cap us off with. There's sure. always been some really great quotable moments throughout New Century. Pound for pound, I think that Castle of the Moon might have the most great quotable moments. It does have some of his best writing, like mm-hmm. in terms of just sentences that will stick with you. Mm-hmm. Whether um, we're talking about dialogue or descriptive detail, referring to Castle Luna as nomadic architecture, mm, chef's kiss. If there is a hell, they will have work for me there too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In a hell of his own making, they have work for him there too. Mm. Oh boy. Well, that that's good. That's two hours recorded there. That, that is the perfect length for a couple of uh, episodes of News of Century. There is one final thing I will say. Okay. And this is perhaps fuel for a song for you to use as the closing credits for one of these. Go on. There is a Miracle of Sound song that came out this year that, you know, fuck Blizzard, Diablo 4 game came out, a lot of people enjoy it. It's not on my radar, and for the time being, fuck Blizzard. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the game has these like beautiful cutscenes and everything like that. The one avenue in which I've been able to enjoy the art and the ideas that are going on in that is in the song that Miracle of Sound did for it called Between Heaven and Hell. Mm. And if you look at the music video and listen to the lyrics of it, it is all about humanity being caught up in this whirlwind of forces clashing between these monsters of hell and of heaven. Go listen to that. like. Sure. If nothing else, like, it's one of those things which, as we've seen in New Century, you can divorce it from the context of what it was originally, like, about. And when you apply it to something else, something new comes up. And right here, I feel like the lyrics of that song fit this quite well. I mean, yeah, we've already had a force of nature attributed to Let Them Go and London Town attributed to Princess Thieves. So, sure, why not? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Greg, this has been this is, I've I've missed this. Mm. Like it's I, been two years, Toby. Two years. Two, two fucking years since we've yeah. had a chance to do a news of the century. Alex, been able to bring this level of energy yeah. to what we're talking about. I mean, Alex, like, do not think that that is us putting pressure on you to no. like Get these out faster. You need to look after yourself. But I know that you write these with the urgency of a man who wants these stories to exist. Yeah. It's that, what is that field of dreams? Like, like, it's like, if you build it, they will come. Go the distance. Yeah, that's us. <laughs> he built it and then we came. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're here. We came here to talk about it because we couldn't fucking not. Yes. That is and the core theme of Through the Window. We cannot keep a lid on it. No. And we the I don't know. I'm at a point where I'm just a spiral yeah. of I, so I, many yeah. ideas that will have you, to you, sit and settle. <laughs> you're, you're, you you need to like think about something else for a while. Don't worry. 
I'm not going anywhere. We will talk about uh, more of this shit later on. Maybe we'll get to have some guest stars. It'll be cool. It'll be Just cool. Take a relax and right. uh, don't don't think about this too much. Well, we either lock in a potential guest star or until I send you the next outline for the ending of Steamheart. Yeah, have have I received that yet? Because I no, need no, no. to. Okay. I'm still working on it. No, no, no. Okay. I. I've I been mean, struggling we, with parts We knew of it. we had work here. And yeah. by the way, like this is our fastest turnaround, not just in terms of like date between me reading it and mm. me start sitting down to record this, which I think looking at watch was zero minutes. Um <laughs> yes. but just in terms of release of the book and me like having the time for it, because like for you, you consume this, you could do this on your drive to work. You like you're just going through it and it gets in there for me i always know that when i sit down with it i need to like have a two monitor setup of the screen where i put down my notes and the screen with the book so that i can just do what i do and it's Look, a great time in the time it's taking you to read this book in its entirety i have read through the book twice and i've gone back to multiple new century books to start like okay i'm putting together my fucking cork board here I, where are all the pieces if if nothing else, I hope that me doing this was almost a like useful way for yes. you to have notes. Like I, need, I needed to externalize it. I need this yeah. was this was the externalization mm. that I've been needing for a fucking week. But, so thank. But you. like in terms of this, like I think that today is Sunday. It came out last Friday, so this yes. is like a week and a half. I think that's a decent turnaround. Yeah, with this will be is out there. I'm looking forward to the next thing. Woo! I think in the meantime, I am going to go away. Think about if there is room in this book for me to like voice a character in it because it's just got that vibe and it would be fun as hell to participate. But I am going to delightfully listen to it, even if that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, figure out what artwork I want to draw of this thing. And now I'm going to sit down and maybe later this evening I will play Spider-Man 2. <laughs> uh, yeah, we didn't even... I, I mentioned that there might be some thematic resonance between that and this to a certain extent. Obviously, it's on a completely let's, different scale. Let's save that for that show. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Absolutely. We're done. Good night, Toby. I'll see you around the multiverse. Take care. Bye-bye. <sighs> so that's us. But there is more Castle of the Moon content coming, as we just had a great recording with Alejandra about her experience with all 14 New Century books. Meaning there's going to be plenty more gushing on the way, never mind a future show where me and Toby go back through Phase 1 and 2 and ponder what has changed now that we know the full arc of Seth's story. But I do want to finish with one final thought. Both of us mentioned last episode that we would never try to claim some sort of superior status over any other New Century fans, just because we are often the loudest voices. These books are first and foremost Alex's, and we're just the lucky people with access and passion. But in the days after this book was released, Alex revealed something unexpected. Castle of the Moon exists in its current form because of our News of the Century on Nightfall of the Wendigo, which is one of the few times I have ever been critical of a New Century story. And when Alex said that, my brain shut down a little. Ideally, I like to think of myself as a booster, 
I have been blessed multiple times by my connection to this community and its shared creative space, but I always tend to downplay my own importance. Hearing Alex's thanks for making this story possible, I felt like, put a penny in the jar, Ainsley Hayes in the West Wing, who just happened to be in the right place at the right time to be the voice to influence something big. It's humbling, that experience. Through the Wind Door will continue to exist as long as there are conversations to be had, but I'm not sure I ever realized the responsibility that comes with choosing this creative endeavor. It's been ten years of New Century, and nearly four years of collaboration with Toby. Here's to the next ten years of stories that inspire and compel, and take us through epic landscapes of thought and emotion. Here's to all the voices that have contributed. Here's to the tiger I get to share my life with. Here's to the Shaws that have enriched our lives. Miss Landingham, what's next? Anyway, here's Miracle of Sound. In the light of a fallen angel, in the shade of the maker painful, we are beautiful, we are vile, multifarious blood and vile. In the blade of a mother's haven, we are noble and we are craven, we are evident growing minds, as of heaven and hell entwined.
That was it? Yeah. That was it? Yeah. I don't understand. You don't understand what? What just happened? Leo said yes, we're in. I don't understand. Leo said yes, that's the end of the meeting. I was just talking, Sam. I was just talking to you. Well, we play with live ammo around here. You convinced me, I convinced Leo, Leo convinced the president. Sam. It's a short day, Ainsley, in a big country. We've got to move fast. And so because I said this in here, the president in yeah. there is going to you got to tell me when that's going to happen. Is this how you guys decide to go to war? I don't know. I'm usually not in the room when they do that. Sam. Could somebody get her a cupcake or something? Sam. 